For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Well, last week we started talking about how God makes himself evident through his creation. And we can look out at the natural world and we can see, if we look closely, we can see that this shows um, indicators, signs that there's a God who is really there. We were reading Romans chapter 1. We read verse 18 last week. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so God has made certain things known about himself. But last week we saw this diagram that we suppress the truth, that here we are as humans, and God is making the truth known to us, the truth that he is really there. The truth that we will answer to him someday, that this life is not all that there is. And it says, as humans, our natural inclination is to run away from the truth, to suppress the truth, to look the other way when it comes to the truth about God. And so when God looks at the human race, he sees this that we saw last week. He sees us closing our ears, covering our eyes, putting our head in the sand in some cases, pulling against the direction that he is trying to show us. And um, we're biased. That's what Romans 1 is telling us. We're biased against the truth that God is really there. And if you've ever read the book To Kill a Mockingbird or seen the movie, um, this is an awesome book and really an excellent movie that still works well even decades after it was was produced. But um, it's the story of a, um, a southern town, I believe in Alabama, Um, in the middle of the 20th century. And in this story, a black man named Tom Robinson is accused of a crime. He's accused of assaulting a white girl. And uh, this is a very racist town. And um, everybody in this has already made up their mind that Tom Robinson is guilty. And the book and then the movie is the story of the lawyer Atticus Finch, pictured on the left here, who makes a very unpopular decision to defend Tom Robinson. And as the trial unfolds, it's told through the perspective of Atticus Finch's daughter. And she's watching and she's describing everything through her, you know, 10 or so year old girl, uh, childlike lens. But as the trial unfolds, it just becomes more and more evident. The evidence mounts that there's no way that Tom Robinson could have committed this crime. You see the girl who he supposedly assaulted keeps changing her story. You learn that her dad is a drunk who has been known to abuse her. Um, you know, she's, she's got all these bruises on the um, right side of her body, which means she was assaulted by someone who's left-handed. Well, her dad is left-handed. Tom Robinson, he doesn't even have really a left hand. His, his left arm was mangled from his childhood in a farming accident. And so as the, as the book goes on, it just becomes so obvious that this guy is not the one who did it. And yet, when the jury goes to make their decision, they're gone for hours and hours and hours. And they come back with the decision that he's guilty. And it's not that the evidence pointed to him as the guilty one. It pointed to the girl's white father. But that jury and really the whole courtroom pretty much had come in with the bias that it's got to be him. He has got to be the one who did it. And they could not see the evidence clearly. And the scripture says that that is what we are like when it comes to evidence for God. That we've shown up with a decision ahead of time. And God begins to show us evidence the other direction. There we sit in the jury box, and we receive evidence after evidence from his spirit, who he calls the the advocate, who convicts us 
of our own guilt. And we don't want to come to the conclusion that God is really there because we're scared of what that might imply. Because we don't know the good news, which is really what Romans is about, the good news of forgiveness. The forgiveness that comes from a God who's really there. And so we need to ask ourselves, am I too biased? Am I I suppressing the truth? Am I unwilling to look at where the evidence really points? That's a challenging question to answer. Paul, again, says, we read this last week, he says, that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Yes, the truth about God is evident within us. It's evident to us. It's clearly seen, understood through what has been made, and it leaves us without excuse. God has given us plenty. God is not trying to be sneaky or hide himself. He's trying to make himself known. The question is, will we respond to the light that he's shining into our lives, or will we shut our eyes even tighter? And as we, as we open our eyes to the light that he gives us, we're able to take more and more light as our eyes adjust to the light that he's shining in our direction. And we said it's not going to be like, you know, some sort of sky writer writing God in the sky. No, it's a, little, it's a little bit more subtle than that. It's a lot more complex than that, actually. And last week, what we looked at is the evidence from the fine-tuning of the universe. We spent the, pretty much the whole week on this. And this is one that's been incredibly persuasive, one of the best arguments for theism. In fact, there was a man named Anthony Flew who was one of the most famous atheists of the 20th century. He would debate people. He's got a debate with William Lane Craig that you can read in um, uh, one particular book. And um, Anthony Flew, at, at the end of his life, after decades of arguing for atheism and debating for atheism, shocked the entire world by admitting that he was now a theist, that he was a believer in God. Not a believer in the Christian God, but he had moved from atheism to theism. And when he writes about his conversion, what he points to in his book, There Is a God, he points to these arguments, these design arguments. He says, since the early 1980s, I'd begun to reconsider atheism. He converted in 2004. I confessed at that point that atheists have to be embarrassed by the contemporary cosmological consensus, what we studied last week, what we'll study tonight. Flew says, I now believe the universe was brought into existence by an infinite intelligence. I believe that this universe's intricate laws manifest what scientists have called the mind of God. It is a hard fact that we live in a universe with certain laws and constants, and life would not have been possible if some of these laws and constants had been different. We still have to come to terms with the origin of the laws of nature, and the only viable explanation here is the divine mind. And so this has um, been the experience of many atheists and others over the decades as, you know, people, what we've noticed is that as our telescopes and our microscopes become more powerful, we see not less but more evidence for a God who designs at a, a level of complexity far greater than we could have imagined. And so tonight, we're going to talk about this question for most of the time. Where did the universe come from? And we're going to consider how this fits with what we're reading here in Romans chapter 1. That God has made made this evident to us, this truth about himself. Let's talk about this. The dominant view throughout history is that the universe is eternal. You look at ancient religion. 
And it's not how did the gods create the universe, but it assumes some sort of a material primeval world and you see the creation of the gods. We see Aristotle arguing for an eternal universe, which is a view that was, um, became firmly entrenched for many centuries. Eastern thinking has pretty much always taught this. The Enlightenment in modern times also picked up this idea of a universe that just simply has always been there. Meanwhile, you know, Bertrand Russell, for example, another one of the most famous 20th century atheists, said, I should say the universe is just there, and that's all. Meanwhile, these strange Judeo-Christians come along, and the Bible comes along holding forth this very strange idea, not that the universe has always been there, but that the universe had a beginning. We read in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and heavens and the earth is like a compound expression, which just means all the entire material world. John 1.3 says, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. That's stating it a couple different ways. That the universe, God spoke, God declared the universe into existence. And this, we find after, oh, the past 40 or 50 years or so, this has become the consensus that the universe did indeed have a beginning. I have a short video here made by Stephen Hawking um, explaining this. In fact, the whole universe is expanding in all directions, getting bigger and bigger, like a balloon inflating. This sounds strange, but to cosmologists, it's like winning the lottery. Because to work out where the universe came from, all we need to do is to stop time and make it run in reverse. Rewind far enough, and everything gets closer together. A lot closer together. All the galaxies, in fact, every single thing converges to a single point. The start of everything, 13.7 billion years ago. So it's quite simple, really. Follow the clues, and we can deduce that a very long time ago, the universe simply burst into existence. An event called the Big Bang. It's like something out of Lord of the Rings at the end there. <laughs> yeah, interesting though, he says, um, the narrator said the universe simply burst into existence the illustrator of this wasn't apparently communicating too well with the narrator because the illustrator only took it back to a single point. That's not bursting into existence because what Big Bang cosmology says is not that the universe was you know, so compressed that it was the size of a basketball. It actually argues that it, it went back to nothing and it burst into existence from nothing, that at a single point in time, both space and time began. Stephen Hawking Almost everyone now believes the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. The universe and time itself.
About two years ago, a um, group of uh, three physicists produced an, uh, printed an article in uh, Scientific Ameri American questioning this that has become accepted now in the scientific community. And so Stephen Hawking and 33 of the world's leading physicists wrote an open letter beating down these guys who are questioning what they call the inflationary theory and Big Bang cosmology. Um, and uh, it was, you know, quite the scandal in the physics cosmology world, you know. There was, it's like a Twitter battle with Stephen Hawking, <laughs> which you do not want to do. Um, but here's what they wrote in their letter. They said, there's no disputing the fact that inflation has become the dominant paradigm in cosmology. Many scientists from around the world have been hard at work for years investigating models of cosmic inflation and comparing these predictions with empirical uh, observations. According to the High Energy Physics Database, Inspire, there are now more than 14,000 papers in the scientific literature written by over 9,000 distinct scientists that use the word inflation or inflationary in their titles or abstracts. It has been subjected to a significant number of tests and so far has passed every one. Yes, this is the consensus now in the physics community. Alexander Vilenkin, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. What this means is that what science tells us is that the universe has not always been here, but that it had a starting point, a point where both space and time came into existence. Space and time came into existence. The basic argument goes something like this. This is the Kalam form of the cosmological argument. It says, whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. The universe began to exist, yes. You know, consider the second law of thermodynamics. There's many lines of evidence supporting this. Um, but second law of thermodynamics says closed systems incline toward a state of equilibrium or entropy. For example, let's imagine you are um, in some sort of a strange uh, TV episode of Black Mirror, let's say, right? And you're walking down a road and you walk into a town and there's no one in the town. It's completely deserted. But then you walk into the coffee shop and you see sitting on the table a cup of coffee and there's steam coming off of the coffee. Well, what we've got to conclude is that Someone or something heated up that coffee relatively recently. It doesn't take that long for the steam to cop, stop coming off of that cup of coffee. And so we can conclude that there was some cause for that to be the case. In fact, we wouldn't just conclude that that coffee has been steaming from eternity past. We conclude it started at a certain point because, you know, someone, there's some sort of a cause of that effect. In fact, if the coffee sat there long enough, eventually all the liquid would, would evaporate from the cup. Eventually, the cup itself would begin to break down, would begin to disintegrate. Eventually, the table, the building that it's sitting on would collapse down into nothing and, and would all eventually turn back into, into dust. And so the second law of thermodynamics, so this is really, on a larger scale, this, is, this can be applied to the universe. As Romans 1 says, that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Paul Davies, 
Today, few cosmologists doubt that the universe, at least as we know it, did have an origin at a finite moment in the past. The alternative, that the universe has always existed in one form or another, runs into a rather basic paradox. The sun and stars cannot keep burning forever. Sooner or later, they will run out of fuel and die. Yeah, you know, the stars, you, if, if they had a gas tank, you would see how much fuel they have left in them. They're burning for a finite period of time. Our own sun is burning for a finite period of time. And yet, there are stars in the universe that are still burning. And so therefore, if the universe had gone on forever, the universe would be out, completely out of usable energy. And we know that it is not. So how do we explain this? Well, Quentin Smith, atheistic philosopher in a debate with William Lane Craig, here's what he said. The most reasonable belief is that we came from nothing, by nothing, and for nothing. Interesting. Is that the most reasonable belief? That we came from nothing, by nothing, and for nothing? You know, Romans 1 says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And I, I, I detect a, a note of that in some of these conclusions. You know, science doesn't dispute. Science can only take us back so far, though. The question is, what is the uncaused cause? What is the first mover? Edward Tryon, 20th century physicist, in Nature magazine, he said, you know, the universe is simply one of those things that happens from time to time. <laughs> really? Awesome. Could it be that we're suppressing the truth here? That we're, not, that we're sitting on the jury and we're not following the evidence back to where it leads? J.L. Mackey very famous 20th century atheist philosopher, says, you know, there's no good reason why a sheer origination of things not determined by anything should be unacceptable. You know, what's, what's your problem with that? Things just originated, not determined by anything. What's wrong with that? And, and you know, the existence of a God with the power to create something out of nothing, so that's acceptable, but a sheer existence of things from nothing, that's unacceptable? Hmm. Again, Paul Davies he says, there's no need to invoke anything supernatural in the origins of the universe or in the origins of life. I've never liked the idea of divine tinkering. For me, it's much more inspiring to believe that a set of mathematical laws can be so clever as to bring all these things into being. John Lennox comments on Davies' point here. He says, you know, that's no better than someone who says, I like to think there's fairies at the bottom of my garden. <laughs> Furthermore, he's ascribing intelligence, if not personality, cleverness to a set of mathematical laws and believing that they can be intelligent on the basis that he finds it inspiring. Again, it's not following the evidence back to where it leads. And you don't need a telescope to know that everything... That, that began to exist, um, something would, must have caused that. How do we explain this? Well, I mean, I think we, we, it should be obvious that nothing can't create things. You know, nothing is not something that has properties. I mean, nothing is literally nothing. I mean, it's nothing. <laughs> and we can't talk about it like it's something that started something. Nothing is nothing. 
And if nothing can create things, then why doesn't nothing create things all the time? Why is nothing so biased toward universes? Why doesn't nothing create, why doesn't nothing fix my breakfast in the morning? Why doesn't nothing go out and clean my car? Why doesn't nothing produce some sort of fabulous music? No, we don't see this happening. And why would we, why would we think then that, that everything was created by nothing? As R.C. Sproul asks, the modern view is far more miraculous than the biblical view. It suggests that nothing created something. More than that, it holds that nothing created everything, which is quite a feat indeed. Yes. On the other hand, we see the Bible says there's really a God who's there that we know is there. And this is the God that set everything into existence. This is the God that stands above the created order. And so when we, when we look at our, our reasoning here, whatever begins to exist has a cause. And the universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. This doesn't say, well, some people are like, well, what caused God? Well, God, by definition, did not begin to exist. We're talking about a God that is supernatural. We're talking about, you know, nothing in the natural world can explain this uncaused first cause. And so, where that leads is to the conclusion, or at least the, the, the reasonable possibility, that perhaps there is someone who stands outside the natural world, who's not subject to the laws of cause and effect. In fact, he is the one who set in order the laws of cause and effect. He is the one who set in order the created world. And this, this creator... This first cause, this first mover has to have a number of properties, has to be spaceless because he's the creator of space, has to be timeless because this is the point where time began, has to be immaterial because he's the one who created the material world, has to be uncaused because he is the, he is the first cause, the causer, not, not the effect, he is the cause. He has to be powerful enough to create the entire universe and set it into existence. Must be all-knowing to have the kind of knowledge and intelligence to be able to do something like this. And has to be volitional. Because there comes a, a choice at a certain point to begin this whole thing. And that right there, I mean, it doesn't necessarily get you to the God of the Bible, but it sure is consistent with the God of the Bible certainly is a pretty good start toward describing the God who's, who's described in the pages of Scripture. And not only do we have a universe, but we're really just getting started. We have a universe that's filled with incredibly complex living organisms. And I just want to give you just a couple of minutes on this. We really don't have time to go deep into this. But I want to look inside the cell for just a moment. And I want, you to sh I want to show you what is going on inside the cells of your body right now without you being aware of it. This is um, about a three-minute video here. Oh, John Lennox actually first. Hold on. <laughs> Lennox says, we've always underestimated cells. He's quoting Bruce Alberts, president of the National Academy of the Sciences of the USA. You know, we really have underestimated cells. I totally agree with that statement. How much do you really appreciate the cells inside your body? They're incredible. 
The entire cell can be viewed as a factory that contains an elaborate network of interlocking assembly lines, each of which is composed of a set of large protein machines. Why do we call this large protein assemblies that underlie cell function protein machines? Precisely because, like machines invented by humans to deal efficiently with the macroscopic world, these protein assemblies contain highly coordinated moving parts. All right, now let's check out the video. With computer animation, we can enter the cell to view this remarkable system at work. After entering the heart of the cell, we see the tightly wound strands of DNA, storehouses for the instructions necessary to build every protein in an organism. In a process known as transcription, a molecular machine first unwinds a section of the DNA helix to expose the genetic instructions needed to assemble a specific protein molecule. Another machine then copies these instructions to form a molecule known as messenger RNA. When transcription is complete, the slender RNA strand carries the genetic information through the nuclear pore complex, the gatekeeper for traffic in and out of the cell nucleus. The messenger RNA strand is directed to a two-part molecular factory called a ribosome. After attaching itself securely, the process of translation begins. Inside the ribosome, a molecular assembly line builds a specifically sequenced chain of amino acids. These amino acids are transported from other parts of the cell and then linked into chains often hundreds of units long. Their sequential arrangement determines the type of protein manufactured. When the chain is finished, it is moved from the ribosome to a barrel-shaped machine that helps fold it into the precise shape critical to its function. After the chain is folded into a protein, it is then released and shepherded by another molecular machine to the exact location where it is needed. Pretty amazing. By the way, you have 30 trillion cells in your body that look something like that. Your body loses and creates 200 billion cells per day, approximately, every single day. Each strand of DNA inside those cells has 3 billion letters in it. 
as a code three billion letters long corresponding to your specific genetic makeup. You know, there's a um, program called the SETI Project, which is searching for extraterrestrial intelligence. And you know, if the SETI Project received, you know, a sequence of numbers, you know, the first 10 prime numbers in order on some sort of radio frequency from space, we would be like, oh, we've discovered there's intelligence out there. There's life out there. Someone is trying to communicate to us. And then we take our microscope and we look inside the cell. And we find inside of every one of our cells, all 30 trillion of them, we find a code three billion letters long that knows how to copy itself, knows how to reproduce new cells, and we wonder, what are we supposed to conclude from something like that? If we would conclude from 10 prime numbers in a row that there's intelligence out there, what do we conclude about a 3 billion characters in a row right inside our own bodies, right inside each of our cells? Is it reasonable to think there might be evidence of intelligence, of design, that there's someone out there who's saying, I'm really here. I created you in a very rational, orderly, intelligent way. Those inclinations you have, those moral motions you have, those are real. You know that something had to have set this in motion. You know that you live in a place that is just right for life. And we didn't know the half of that. We didn't know one billionth of it until modern science has told us just how right for life everything is. And we look at Romans 1 and we see that God has made this evident. He's made it clear. God is calling out. We are biased. We suppress the truth. Doug Grutheis, in his book, Christian Apologetics, he quotes Robert Jastrow, who's a pretty famous NASA astronomer in the 20th century. Jastrow wrote a book called God and the Astronomers. And um, what, he, what he details is, is he details the reluctance of the scientific community to accept the Big Bang because of their pre-existing biases against something like this. Grutai says, Jastro notes that as the Big Bang Theory was gaining ground, many physicists were reluctant to accept its implications. Arthur Eddington wrote in 1931, I have no ax to grind in this discussion, but the notion of a beginning is repugnant to me, he says. I simply do not believe that the present order of things started off with a bang. The expanding universe is preposterous, incredible. It leaves me cold. Walter Nernst, the German chemist, wrote, to deny the infinite duration of time would be to betray the foundations of science. Alan Sandage of the Carnegie Observatories, whose research helped confirm the theory, said, it is such a strange conclusion. It cannot really be true. The great Einstein himself, whose general theory of relativity paved the way for the development of the Big Bang, said, the idea of an expanding universe irritates me, quote, unquote, <laughs> And to admit such possibilities seems senseless. 
It's not the numbers that bothered Einstein. It was something else that irritated him. A more recent example from the famous physicist Stephen Hawking. And reflecting on the standard or hot big bang model, he says, it would be very difficult to explain just why the universe should have begun in just this way. Except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. He goes on to explain how to deal with that difficulty. But why is it a difficulty if there's, you know, the existence of a creator resolves the difficulty quite neatly. The existence of a first mover. And he says, Jastrow reflects on these kinds of statements. Jastrow says, there is a strange ring of feeling and emotion in these reactions from these scientists. They come from the heart, whereas you'd expect the judgments to come from the brain. Why? Jastrow says, I think part of the answer is that scientists cannot bear the thought of a natural phenomenon which cannot be explained, even with unlimited time and money. There's a kind of religion in science. It is the religion who believes there is order and harmony in the universe, which incidentally is a presupposition that would come from an orderly, God, orderly rational God who set everything up. There's a predictability to science. And why is it that way? It's because of the predictability of the God who set these laws in, in motion. Every event, Jastrow says, can be explained in a rational way as the product of some previous event. Every effect must have its cause. That is the basis of natural science. And there can be no first cause. And we must look beyond the natural to the supernatural. And that is really where, where the chain leads. The causer of this, and the causer of this, and the causer of this. And then scripture says, in the beginning was God. And God is the first cause. He is the first mover. And so I come back to our courtroom scene again. In conclusion, we're biased. Romans 1 says we're suppressing the truth about God that's evident to us. And there you are, you're on the jury, the great cosmic jury. And I'm sure you came in with one expectation of how the evidence was going to turn out. But now, as more and more evidence is produced, as the lawyer steps up front and presents case after case, argument after argument, perhaps you're starting to realize maybe, maybe this evidence is leading somewhere. Maybe my initial, precept, my, my initial conclusion that I came to Maybe that's wrong. Maybe we need to realize that, you know, God has not given us inescapable proof. He's not going to do that. But what he has given us is plenty of evidence. But science, it can only take us back so far. And it can only do so much to persuade us. What we need is not just the rational evidence, but we need a personal encounter with this God who is really there. And that is what God is offering to you. That is why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you, so that the, the good news can come into your life, that you can receive his righteousness, as we talked about last week. It's a free gift. And it's your decision. Your decision to make. This is a personal decision between you and God. And so... Are you ready to follow the evidence where it leads? And, and if you're not ready yet, won't you at least come back next week? Or we're going to have one more week of taking a look at evidence.
In fact, next week, we're going to depart from our study in science, and we're going to look at a different line of reasoning called presuppositional apologetics, which examines certain things we just take for granted that we assume to be true. And it shows how these assumptions actually, that make life livable, actually point back to God. Like things like, for, it, how, is there such a thing as a soul? What's our explanation for consciousness? What about morality and free will? All of which are tied in with one another. We're going to take a look at all these questions next week as we finish off Romans 1. Well, let's pray. Yeah, God, it's really incredible to see your word confirmed um, with relatively recent scientific discoveries. And um, I love how that chain of cause and effect leads back, but only back so far. Um, And it really leads us back to the question of what came before all this. And um, I'm thankful that you've revealed that to us in your word, God, along with many different lines of evidence of many different varieties. I pray, God, that we would not allow our pre-existing biases to get in the way of that, but that we would be able to follow the evidence where it leads. And um, that we would follow you, not because of, follow you or not follow you, not because of tradition or this is what we were taught or this is what I, what I like to think is the case, but because it's true. And I pray our faith would rest on the foundation of the truth. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.